Well, thank you very much for that nice introduction, Tom. <laughs> first things first. Isaac, you like the necktie? Huh? Okay. You know, there were a considerable number of first-timers stood up. It was going through my mind. Maybe we, we, we ought to organize. This is my first Blackstone experience. And this morning, while most of you were still asleep, I slipped out on these hallowed Methodist grounds and said a Roman Catholic rosary with the Apostles' Creed, the Glory Bees, the Hail Marys, and the All Fathers. And I said it for the founders of this Blackstone Retreat, for all those who came before us, for all of you that are here now, and for all of those that are to follow. And maybe this prayer of mine might have a special hearing. I'm reminded of the time Sister Ignatia, the little nun in Akron, who helped tens of thousands of alcoholics with Dr. Bob, gentle woman that she was. She was walking through the ward one day, and an old drunk said to her, Sister, say a prayer for me. And she says, say one for yourself. He likes to hear another voice for a change. <laughs> this is a new, unique moment for me tonight, a special moment. And I savor this moment. You know, never again in the history of creation, I don't believe, will the exact assemblage of people, of souls that are here tonight, ever gather together again. So this is unique, isn't it? All of you that are out there, all of those who worked for this weekend, all of those who participated in this program, it's a special moment. And you and this Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me and shown me how to be able to savor and celebrate this moment. So each of you, and I've had the opportunity this weekend to have my little encounters and exchanges and sharings, and all of us can't talk to everyone else, but I think all of us here are very important to each other this weekend and tonight, and in the future in our sobriety, because each of you, by being here, has touched my life in a very special way. I'd like to thank the trustees and the trusted servants of Blackstone for the privilege of being here and sharing tonight. And I'd like to tell you this. I would rather be right here, right now, with you than I would any place else on the face of the earth. And I'll tell you why. Because a good part of my life, I always wanted to be someplace else than where I was. And you've taught me to celebrate this moment, to be happy to be here. I was always uncomfortable. I always wanted to move. I always wanted to see what was someplace else. The young people talk about wanting to be where it's at. You've shown me that for me to be where it's at, I have to be there. And if I'm here right now, this is where it's at for me. Sort of convoluted logic. <laughs> Lawyers. But there are other reasons why I'm happy to be here tonight. And I'll go into them. And 
Lord, don't let me be too somber tonight, but I feel a little serious. This place has moved me and touched me. I think that God touches the life of every living person, but I think in certain special circumstances, and not too frequently, there's a spark of celestial fire that comes down and ignites the life of a person. And this celestial fire imparts to this person a knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. And I think that some 46 or 7 years ago, there was such a spark of celestial power that came down into the desolate, dreary December hospital room of a man by the name of Bill Wilson. And as he laid there in a unbearable depression and right at the bottom of the pit, he shouted out, if there is a God, let him show himself. I'm ready to do anything, anything. And there was a great light in the room. And then in his mind's eye, he felt as if he were on a mountain. And he felt a rush of air or wind of the Spirit just swirl about him. And he felt relief, release, a new freedom. And he felt a presence. And that can be analyzed and has been analyzed in many ways as the hallucination of an alcoholic, as divine revelation, as a spiritual experience. And we can judge what he reported because it was a private episode in his room by what followed. Over the next four or five months, this man by the name of Bill Wilson talked to other alcoholics, other people suffering from this malady. Did he have success? Did anyone get sober? No one got sober. Did he have success? Yes, he had success. How's that? It sounds like a contradiction. Because I believe that success is finding out what God's will is for you and me and then doing it, not judging the results. And that's what he did. And then there came a day, the day before Mother's Day, that's coming up to remind some of you, the 9th of May. There came a day, the day before his Mother's Day, when this broken down stockbroker was in Akron, Ohio, he had about $10 in his pocket. He was in the Mayflower Hotel, and he had the whim-whams. And he read the church directory, and at random called the church and got an Episcopal priest and explained his problem, and the priest wondered about this man, but gave him ten names. He went through nine, nine of them, called the tenth, and you all know the story. He met Dr. Bob. And that night, when he and Dr. Bob got together, 
Bill told this story about the great crash of 29, about the early 30s and the problems he had, about how they had to move in with his wife's folks, Lois's parents, how Lois worked in a department store, how he stole money from her purse to buy booze. And Bob shook his head up and down. Yep, that's the way it was with me. That's me. That's me. That's how I was. Here were two alcoholics for the first time in recorded history sharing like this. This was a beautiful moment in the experience of mankind. This is my first Blackstone experience. And what does this mean to me? Beyond the personal self-fulfillment, beyond the sharing, beyond the joy, beyond the fun, beyond the laughs we've had this weekend, I think that you and I are charged with, with a responsibility. And the responsibility that we have, and I think you're fulfilling tonight, is to take this beautiful moment when Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson came together, keep it bright and shiny and as humble as a new penny for generations yet unborn, yet to come. Maybe, I'm in the grandfathering, maybe for my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren, but to keep the simple, pristine beauty of that moment the spiritual clarity of that moment for these people. And that's what I think our duty is. I know in a group this big there must be some people that are pretty new here. And I know there are many of us for whom Blackstone is very new. But let's stop for a minute and look at things in a historical perspective. We're within the first quarter century of Blackstone. We're within the first half century of AA. If you're brand new in AA tonight, and if you're brand new at Blackstone tonight, a thousand years from now, having been in the first quarter century, the first generation of Blackstone, or the first half century of AA, you will be looked upon as one of the fathers of this retreat, or mothers, and of the AA movement. Isn't that true? We're a movement in its infancy, and that's why I think we're charged with such a heavy responsibility. Now, my spiritual life. Not yet, Lord. That's been my spiritual life. Like Margaret, I always had a God. I always believed in God. But I was like the guy in the congregation, guy sort of like Isaac here, who was sitting in the front row of the congregation. And the preacher looked out at the assemblage and he said, how many of you want to go to heaven? All stand, please. And everybody stood up except this one guy. And the preacher looked down at him and said, don't you want to go to heaven? And he says, oh, yes, Reverend, I do. He says, how come you're not standing? He says, well, I thought you were making up a load to go right now. And he says, he says, I'm not ready yet. So part of the problem I've had 
is I've never felt just just ready yet. You know, I want to hang on to these resentments a little bit. Something inside me. I don't know. This Jekyll and Hyde business says, be a midget. Be vindictive. Be small. Be petty. Even though there's all this beauty, joy, and magnificence in this tremendous universe that's been given to serve you. And sometimes it gets a little discouraging. But I think of what our book says, that this is a program of spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. And nowhere does it say that I'm going to be so gifted as to grow rapidly. And I like to think of St. Augustine, one of the great, what they call penitential saints. St. Augustine was a, if there could be a saint for AA, I think, it might be him. He was a late bloomer. He had all of the passions of the flesh. He defined for me what our serenity is. He called it peace. He said, peace is that tranquility which comes from order. You know, when things are ordered, there's a beautiful stillness, a beautiful simplicity. Peace is that tranquility that comes from order. But another thing he said, when I think about myself and my own spiritual growth, when St. Augustine found his higher power, he said, Late have I loved thee, O beauty of ancient age, yet ever new, so late have I loved thee. And I hope that people, 500 and 700, and yes, and I believe, a thousand years from now, when they find their higher power and when they find this fellowship, they can say, oh, beauty of ancient age, because I hope that in time, linking together into the future, our blessed fellowship can become a thing that becomes an antiquity. Now, what you have heard is just by way of preface to my talk. I'm going to start my talk now. I always start by saying that a couple thousand years ago, a Greek philosopher by the name of Socrates defined friendship. He said that a friend is another self. And when Socrates said this, I believe he meant that a friend is someone who shares with you. A friend is someone who understands you. A friend is someone who is concerned about you. A friend is someone who hurts when you hurt. And a friend is someone who doubles the joy when good things happen in your life. And in short, a friend is someone who loves you. And in that sense of Socrates, I'd like to say good evening, friends. Because nowhere in the experience of my life have I found the friendship, the understanding, the camaraderie, the concern, the love that I have here in this fellowship of AA. The philosophers say that love is diffusive of itself. In other words, it doubles on itself. And I've seen that proved here this weekend. My name is Ernie Ruskowskis, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. 
And when I say I'm an alcoholic, I make one simple admission. And that is that I cannot take a drink safely. And this is all that I admit when I make that statement. I don't admit, when I say I'm an alcoholic, that I'm necessarily neurotic, psychotic, weak-willed, wishy-washy, of little learning, poor background, lazy, unemployed, or unemployable, or any of the other ugly and opprobrious things that I associated with alcoholics and alcoholism before I found you good people. I only admit that I cannot take a drink safely. And I think this is important for the newer person to hear something like this for this reason. This word alcoholic is still a dirty word with a lot of people. And if there is a word in the English language that has delayed and denied people's sobriety, it has to be this world. But I learned here from you that an alcoholic is a person that cannot drink safely. I didn't learn and embrace this definition, however, with rushing speed. Because I didn't believe that I belonged here with all of you. You see, I was never a daily drinker. I was never a morning drinker. I was never a spree drinker. I was never divorced because of my drinking. I was never fired from a job because of drinking. I never consulted a physician because of my drinking. I was never in a hospital or a rehabilitation facility. You might be saying, what's this guy going to talk about for the next couple hours? I didn't say I was never arrested because of my drinking, did I? Because like some few of you out there, there have been some unjust arrests in my background. I had a few what I considered to be all-American schoolboy arrests when I was in college and law school. And I thought everyone had these. I later learned that they didn't when I, when I faced that character committee to become a member of the bar. After I became a lawyer, I was only arrested once for drinking. And since I was introduced as Ernie the attorney, and even if I hadn't been so introduced, I'd still tell you this little anecdote. Usually, I like to drink with other people. I like to share myself and let them enjoy me. <laughs> but occasionally, when I felt low and I felt depressed, I preferred to do solitary drinking, where I could meditate on my problems. And I preferred to drink in the type of place where I would get an immediate lift as soon as I walked in. And you get a lift like that by walking into a very low-bottom place. You walk in, you look around, you say, I'm better than these people. That gives you a fast lift right away. Well, there's a place like this in downtown Washington, Jimmy's, on 15th Street. I know some of the old-timers that I've met here tonight would say 15th Street is really a slice of the big time. I should have gone down to 9th Street. But anyhow, there's a place on 15th Street, Jimmy's. You walk down a few little steps. And there were always these tired old men lined up sitting at the bar there having a good time. They'd be sitting there in these long coats that Stu talked about, sitting there at the bar looking straight ahead, having a good time. And I walked in this one particular night, took up the first stool in the bar which was open, and sat down and started to have a good time myself. 
Now, if you were a barroom drinker like I was, you sit there and you arrange your change in various geometric patterns for a little while. A lot of self-amusement involved in this, having a good time. You blot your glass and make circles with your glass. You analyze yourself, little character studies in the mirror on the back bar. As a matter of fact, Stu said this morning he thought he was too fat to be an alcoholic. I looked in the mirror on the back bar, and I said, you better watch, kid, you're getting a little heavy. I already weighed 308 pounds. You better watch, kid. Shows how much difficulty some alcoholics have with the honesty part of this program. And like Stu, that's another reason I felt that I was not an alcoholic. I felt I was too heavy to be an alcoholic. My idea of an alcoholic is a guy that looks like he's had his rear end shot off on World War II, has a lot of slack in the seat of his pants. And at 308 pounds, it's hard to fill that definition. But anyhow, I sat there, and I was slugging myself away with this vodka and orange juice, and all of a sudden, over in one corner of the bar, there's a terrible commotion broke out. Nothing worse than a drunken woman. And I thought I'd bring a little something out on ERA here. You know, they said, well, all the trustees and their wives, please stand. I know a lot of you didn't miss that one. But anyhow, <laughs> anyhow... This big, tall, angular, gawky gal was terribly drunk over in one corner of this bar. And she's in an argument with the owner, Jimmy, who was a pretty good belter himself. And he's back there tending bar. And they get to arguing back and forth and cussing back and forth. And finally, she hurls some obscenities across that bar that visibly shook up these old men I'm sitting with. They're starting to say, hey, what kind of a place is this we're drinking in, you know? So Jimmy got on the phone, called the police up, and the police were there in a minute. And I sat there watching this drama unfold and just luxuriating in being so close to this danger, the vicarious thrill of being so close to this danger and not personally involved yet. Well, they started to drag her out of the place, and she's cussing, and she's swinging that purse all around, and she's all tangled up in the furniture, these old wire back, they used to call them Coca-Cola chairs, dragging about half the furniture in the place out with her. And as they pull her by my bar stool, in what I thought was a very gallant gesture, I reached into my pocket and took out a business card, an attorney card, extended my arm, and I said, Baby, if they give you a hard time, call Ernie the attorney. And I never got to pull my arm back. They yanked me right out into the paddy wagon, <laughs> right along with her. She, uh, she and I had some of that sharing and togetherness there in the paddy wagon talking about those police. I'll tell you, really, it was some years later, a few years later, after I was in AA, I was sitting in a nice restaurant downtown, the, the kind that Hal Marley likes, 
And uh, sitting in a nice restaurant downtown, I was with some clients or some colleagues. And uh, the waitress handed us the menus, and there was that eye contact and recognition. And there was so much chemistry passed back and forth there, you could have rolled an egg across it. But neither of us said anything. We were very discreet about it. But as I said, usually I like to drink with other people and share myself. My philosophy was Big Ernie works hard and he plays hard. And Stu's talking about living in the fast lane. That's the way to go. That's the way to go. That's the right way to go. Celebrate life. It's the way I believe right now, really. So after a tough day in the office or an arduous day in court, five o'clock would roll around. And one of my colleagues would call me up or I'd get in touch with one of them and would meet someplace between and among our respective offices. And one of my favorite watering holes was the Jefferson Hotel in Washington, 16th Street there. Sort of a snooty hotel, to be frank about it. They never had conventions there. You never saw anyone running around with tags or anything like that. It was reserved and dignified. And the kind of place I thought that uh, was appropriate for me to drink in. And I'd walk in there and they had a, they had a, an organ player there that had a sixth sense about him. He could tell as I walked in the mood I was in. Whether I was in the mood for show tunes that night or whether I had sort of a Spanish mystique about me and hit play a tango or something like that and uh, recognized me for the big shot that I was and I should have been because I was in there with real strong rent money buying drinks for people whose rent was already paid. And after a tough day, that first martini, that first scotch is pretty nice. It would roll down and light my ribs up like the lights on a pinball machine. And I'd just unwind and relax. Nice effect. And I'm with attractive people. The company is stimulating. The conversation is scintillating. And I was a leader. I was a leader. I'd, a little ahead of the rest, I'd raise a finger and order, order the next round. And then being a thoughtful guy, I'd excuse myself and tiptoe out to call my wife up. And I'd get on the phone and I'd say, Kathy, don't hold dinner tonight. You and the six kids, go ahead and eat. She was in her seventh pregnancy. We have eight now. You, uh, you and the kids go ahead and eat. I'm tied up down here with a client. And as soon as I can shake loose, I'll be right along. And should say, Ernie, please, please don't stay out and get drunk tonight. Imagine talking that way to a professional man like me. I'd say, look, Kathy, I'm down here trying to scratch a living out for you people. The tango music's playing in the background. And I says, but if you're going to give me this static, you're going to give me this romance, tonight I am going to stay out just to teach you a lesson. And I'd hang up with righteous indignation, and now I could go back and do that revenge drinking, that get-even drinking. Oh, that was sweet. And I could drink without having that guilt trip on me. I could now drink with a clear conscience. 
So I'd proceed, and I'd go to order some more rounds, and finally I'd put my hand up to order a round, and one of the guys would say, hey, Ernie, wait a minute, hold it. I've had enough, none for me. I'd say, I thought we were going to have a few drinks. He says, we've had eight. I'm worried about driving. I says, you mean you're going to leave me like this right in the shank of the evening? Well, I'd get a little indignant, and the party would break up, and I'd go back to the men's room and tidy up this 308-pound body of mine. And then I'd go out and proceed to cut the biggest, widest swath through cafe society, as I then fashioned it in downtown Washington. And I fashioned myself the man's man, the ladies' man, the raconteur, the man of letters, the social lion. You know, this AA is a very deflationary program. <laughs> you people told me I was a 308-pound drunk. <laughs> so, around a quarter to two in the morning... When the barmaids are cleaning up and they're glad to have last call, last call and get these drunks out of here, I don't want the party to end. I'm over in an after-hours joint in Chinatown. Or maybe I can get a little group of other crazies organized and we go over to Baltimore or someplace, and I'd come rolling in 3, 4, 5, 6 a.m. Maybe that's why I never needed the morning drink, because I drink so much, so late, I was usually singing those show tunes, you know, when I got up in the morning after a couple of hours sleep. Now, what happened at home? What happened at home? Kathy had never heard of Al-Anon. So she tried several different approaches. One was the attack. We all know that doesn't work because I'd counterattack. Poor kid was in ringlets, and that's before long hair was fashionable, you know. You were going to do this, and you and I couldn't say anything because everything she said was gospel true. She was right, and I had to sit there and take it and get out of it the best way I could. And then the other approach she used is when I'd come down in the morning after having been out real late and a real bad one-night stand, maybe rolled in about five, got about an hour or two sleep, I'd come down, be drinking a little coffee. She has the morning wake-up show on. She's scrambling some eggs for the kids. And I'm sitting there trying to read the paper, and I'm waiting for the bombs to drop. And I'm waiting. Some of us are a little impatient, you know. I'm waiting. And I say, okay, okay, Kathy, cut the act. I know what's bugging you, my drinking. You see, Kathy, here's the problem. You're not normal. Now, let me explain that. My wife and I both met when we were students at Catholic University in Washington. She was in the uh, nursing school. Stu, you said you met, uh, you met your wife uh, uh, on a bus, school bus. We met on a streetcar back when the streetcars were running. Here's something I've never told at an AA meeting. The day my wife met me, I was on a streetcar going downtown Washington with my typewriter to a pawn shop to get money to drink on that night. We got acquainted, and you gave me your address, and I thought to myself, next time I'm broke, I'll call her up, right? <laughs> and uh, I called her up in a couple days. She didn't drink. 
Every time I was broke, I called her up, and I was broke a lot, and we got to go and study. But anyhow, <laughs> but uh, on her 21st birthday, a couple of her girlfriends took her out to dinner, down to the wharf, to Hogate's, and she had her first legal drink of beverage alcohol, Pink Lady or Stinger or something. She doesn't remember what it was. She got a little tipsy, a little silly, a little nauseated, decided she didn't like this stuff, and she hasn't had a drink from that day till this day. Now, I said, Kathy, you see, if you were normal like other women, I'd come home, we'd have a gracious drink together. This was a lie. My idea of a gracious drink isn't to come home and to have 10 or 12 little hands with peanut butter and jelly on them tugging up my trouser legs. I like that bright lights and music. But I said, if my drinking bothers you like this, I'm going to quit. And as I said this, my eyes would well up with the inner goodness I saw in myself. Of course, I'll tell you, I ball pretty easy. I'm a t- just taking the empty Pepsi bottles back to the AMP can get me teary-eyed. It doesn't take it doesn't take too much for me. But I'm going to quit drinking, Kathy, as a scholasticus, as the philosophers say, semper pro semper. That means always and forever. Not only am I going to quit drinking, but tomorrow I'm going to go on a diet. And quit smoking. I'm Catholic. Haven't been to confession in a while. Saturday I'm going to confession. And Sunday... I'm going to march up to the rail with the kids. And it makes me misty-eyed now to see this spontaneous and complete physical and spiritual and psychological regeneration of a human being. You know the tragedy of all of this? Is when I said these things, I met them. Didn't we meet them? Kathy says, okay, we'll see what happens. So I'd get through that day somehow. Now, by this time in my drinking, I was out on the one-night stand, and then I had the ferocious hangover for three or four days, and then another one-night stand. And this is the way it was going. So I'd get downtown that day sick. Next day, a little bit better, but still, you know, maybe I'll try lighting up a cigarette. The third day, things are getting a little bit back to normal. I get a little peck on the cheek when I leave in the morning. I come home that evening. I get a little work done. I come home that evening. Kathy's made a nice meatloaf dinner. She had a special recipe in those days. There's about seven loaves of bread stuffed into this pound of meat. <laughs> Listen, that Jefferson Hotel is high class. You've got to economize someplace. And after dinner, we'd have a nice family evening. We'd go to the 5 and 10 or the library. 
and things would be getting back to normal. The next day now, the fourth day, I'd wake up. I'd wake up and it would be a morning like this morning. A morning like this morning at Blackstone. Cool, crisp, invigorating football weather. And I feel well. I feel like a young lion. The world is my oyster. And I'd come bouncing out of that bed like a jack-in-a-box. It's great to be alive. And when those good days come along, you got to grab them. With gusto, like they say. And I'd go downtown, and boy, I'd get a week's work done in a day. And I'd be so charged up and so exhilarated at 5 o'clock that I'd stop just for a beer. Just for a beer. And I'd be off to the races again. And these one-night stands of mine moved closer and closer together till there came a day in February of 1961. When I rolled in, I crept in, got a few hours of sleep, got up and I was going to creep out, and Kathy stopped me. She says, wait a minute, Ernie. She was in her seventh pregnancy. And she said, you know, the children, unlike myself, aren't a party to this contract. I took you for better or for worse. They never made such an agreement. I'm going to take them back to your parents or to my aged parents in western Pennsylvania, wherever they'll have us, but any life is better than this. And my friends, they call that the time of intervention or precipitating the crisis. But I knew that I had run out of string that day. And I knew there was no sense in arguing. I knew that she meant what she said. And I knew that as soon as she could arrange, she would be gone. And I didn't sing the show tunes that day on the way downtown. And the hangover set in early. And before I even got downtown, almost like being hit with a railroad tie across the back, that terrible lash of remorse. And as I've said many times, I wonder, I just wonder, if anyone can ever know the remorse and the loneliness of an alcoholic. And I got downtown and I rested a little bit and got up and I had a motion to argue in the federal courthouse, United States courthouse. Sometimes you have to sit around all day and wait for your turn to argue your motion. But I was number one on the list that day. And I got up and I argued my motion and finished arguing my motion, came out of court, and I went to the corner of 3rd and C Streets Northwest, and I stood there. Some of you people that are old enough will remember when Kennedy was inaugurated, the tremendous snowstorm we had. Well, by this time early in February, that snow was melted and dirty in the gutter. And that's the way I felt. And it was a bleak, gray, funereal day. And that's the way I felt. And I felt so isolated and so phony and so alone that I couldn't go back to my office where I'd have just me for company. And I stood there and maybe that was some kind of a moment of truth. But I walked down a side street from court to the office of another lawyer. Some of you here know him, Hugh M. And like I've said, for those that know him, if you must have known how sick I was to go down there and see Hugh that day. <laughs> but I'll ever be grateful to Hugh. You know, 
It's terrifying sometimes. It's almost as if I were directed to go there. Hugh and I had never been drinking buddies. Our paths had crossed socially. We had never been colleagues professionally, but our paths had crossed professionally. Why I ever went there, I'll never know. And I walked into that office, and I said, Hugh, let's go down the corner and have a cup of coffee. He said, sit down. I'll send out for coffee. And I sat down, and we got to talking about the evils of booze. And Hugh said to me, he said, you know, Ernie, I haven't had a drink in six months. And I said, gee, Hugh, that's wonderful, because everyone around the courts knows what a drunk you are. Something to that effect. Uh, He wasn't too happy with me, really. And then he dropped a bombshell. He said, I've joined AA. And I said, no. No. You're with these tambourine rattlers. These prayer mashers. Now, let me tell you where I was coming from. As I sat there with Hugh at that moment, here was the context of my life. I was getting about 50 phone calls a day from irate clients and creditors. I owed about $20,000 in $500 and $1,000 chunks in small loans to banks and to colleagues who trusted me. I hadn't filed a federal tax return in five years. My wife was in her seventh pregnancy, and we didn't have any hospitalization. Our furniture looked like something the Flintstones had given the goodwill. No car insurance. This is where I was coming. My wife was leaving that day, right? Didn't I say that? And as Hugh told me that he was an AA, you know what emotion I had? Pity for him. (laughs) Huh? What do you think of that? We've all come a little distance, I think. So we got to talking about the evils of booze, and the phone rang, and it was my sponsor-to-be calling up, Bashful Buck. And Buck called Hugh up, and he says, look, I'm going to come by and pick you up for the AA luncheon. And Hugh says, okay. He says, by the way, he says, there's a fat one here you might want to talk to. (laughs) He says, I'm not too interested in him. So Hugh hung up. He says, look, Ernie. Enjoyed talking to you. He says, there's an AA luncheon. He says, why don't you come to this luncheon? And I says, oh, no. I says, look, I got a lot of problems. My wife is leaving. I'm not interested in talking to a lot of people today. He says, come on, I'll even pay for the lunch. I says, no, thanks. That's nice. He says, there's no banner on a table that says AA or anything like that to embarrass you. Or, And all of a sudden, a light bulb went on in my head. And I says, wait a minute. I said, Hugh, if I go to this luncheon... Will you call my wife up and tell her I've filled out all the papers and everything and join this AA thing? And he says, we don't have any papers, but we'll give her a call. Well, time is getting late. Let me try to move a little faster. I went to the luncheon, and I was impressed with the guys I met. They were my kind of people. They were the drinking set, only they weren't drinking. They were interesting. They were interesting human beings. Like I say, some of them look a little out of place with those big red noses eating all those strawberry sundaes and everything like that. But other than that, they were an attractive group of people. After the luncheon, we came back to Hugh's office. 
And Buck got on the phone and called my wife up. Oh, these poor spouses, what they go through. She thought it was a bill collector. He says, Kathy, this is Buck Doyle. I'm an alcoholic. We're sitting here talking to your husband. He thinks he might have a problem with alcohol. What do you think? What do you think, she thought, you know. <laughs> Buck's a terrific salesman. And he says, Ernie, Ernie's willing to go to an AA meeting tonight. Like I was making some monumental concession to this poor pregnant Ernie's willing to go to an AA meeting tonight. He says, look, you might not have any faith in this big clown, but you might have some faith in this program. It's worked for me. It's worked for this other lawyer here, Hugh. It's worked for hundreds of thousands of people. Why don't you stick around and see what happens? Well, she didn't have too many places to go. The poor woman said, okay. That night, I went to my first AA meeting in South Arlington, Virginia. As I walked through the halls of that, uh, up to the, that hall, that South Arlington group, I just wallered in self-pity. Oh, I thought to myself, look how hard you've worked, kid. Look how you've struggled. And for what? You're going in with all these drunks now. And I walked through those doors and I felt like screaming, unclean, unclean. There were about 80 people in a room. And I felt like they were divided into two groups. There was 79 in one group. And there was me in the other group. <laughs> if you're new and if you feel you don't belong here. But I was impressed. I was impressed. There was a young fellow, and that's why I believe in anniversaries. There was a young fellow there celebrating his first anniversary. And he stood up and he told how it was before and how he came to AA and how it is now. And his folks were in the front row and they were just exuding gratitude. And I was impressed. I says, this is a terrific program for these people. <laughs> See, here's a lifelong problem I've had. I've always been faster on the uptake than other people. Let me give you an example. With the six or seven kids at home, I'm the kind of guy that will go to a discount store, buy a wagon for the kids. It comes in a factory carton. Bring it home. I open it up. And they put directions in those things for other people. I take those directions out, walk across the hall, throw them in the trash can, and come back and start to put the wagon together. About an hour later, when there's blood running down my knuckles, there's ball bearings running across the floor, the axle's bent, there's too few or too many parts. Then I go get the paper that they had packed in a box for the squares. See? That night, a minor miracle happened. I started to follow directions, maybe for the first time in my adult life. They told me to buy the big book and read it. I bought it and devoured it. I took it home and I read the first story in the book, Bill's story. Here was a guy that was a stockbroker on Wall Street, made and lost more money than a lot of us will ever see, a big shot. A co-founder of this program. He proved that this, this program will work for big shots. There's a story in the back of the book. I wish it was still in the current edition. Joe's Woes. Joe was a guy that had been strapped down 35 times in Bellevue. An eggshell of a man. The walking dead, a zombie. Even the attendants there had written him off. And Joe lived to see the day that he came back to Bellevue carrying a message of hope and joy. 
And that story proved to me that this program will work for anyone who is willing to be willing. Anyone who will let it happen. They told me to go to a meeting every day, and I did that for a couple of years. They told me to stick with the winners. And when you start drying out, you see that's just common sense. They told me to read the literature. They told me when I had the whim-whams to call somebody up, I didn't have to tell them I felt like getting drunk. I just had to tell them I wanted to talk to them. And I started to follow those directions. And in about six weeks, the Iron Curtain went up in my mind, and I had to admit the fact of my alcoholism. And I am going to quit in a couple of minutes. I had to admit the fact of my alcoholism. I could look back in my life to when I was 16 years old. My immigrant parents who had come over here from Lithuania, who had saved nickel to nickel to send me to a fine prep school. And you know the present I gave my senior year in prep? I got kicked out. I got kicked out. All the wretched mediocrity there had been in my life. I laughed earlier about these schoolboy arrests. You know, when I came before that character committee that was determining whether I was a fit person to be a member of the bar of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, they didn't laugh about that arrest record. As a matter of fact, when all of my classmates were in the big ceremonial courtroom on the sixth floor of the United States Courthouse being sworn in and their wives and girlfriends wearing corsages, I was cross town drinking beer waiting and sweating out to see if I would be admitted and accepted as a member of the bar. And they did admit me and accept me, but there was no big ceremony. My, my name, and it's an eternal reminder to me, wasn't put on in that fancy writing. It was typed in by a girl clerk and handed across the counter to me. So I had to admit the fact of my alcoholism. But I was lucky. There came a day not too long after that. When I looked at you people and I said, you know, you are not organized in a gigantic conspiracy to fool me. You're being authentic and honest. You say this is chronic, irreversible, and fatal. And it's like the cucumber going into the pickle. You can't reverse the process. And there's no Philadelphia lawyer out of, that can get me out of this. But most of all, you spoke with an eloquence that comes from the heart. Margaret said the other night about a thousand masks. You know, the privilege to me is to be able to come together with you and take the mask off that I've hidden behind so much of my life and not to be afraid to have you see me as I am because you'll accept me, whoever and whatever I am. I had the privilege of talking on a program a couple of weeks ago, and maybe this isn't even going to go over to you as profound as it was to me, but there was a fellow that got up and read the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. He had been a skid row drunk, and he got to that third tradition. He said the only requirement for membership is a desire to be sober. And he stopped and laughed a little bit, chuckled. He says, you know, if they... If that had another requirement, I probably wouldn't have made it. And gee, that hit me like a freight train. I thought to myself, my God, even some tiny requirement beyond a desire to be, not to drink, would have denied thousands of people this blessed sobriety. That was profound what he said. Oh, the wisdom our founders had. Wisdom 
I think of seeing things from God's point of view. So, you spoke to me collectively with love and with an eloquence that comes from the heart. And it's time, it's getting late, it's getting a little warm here. Now, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit with this. That first day, I'm going to brag first. I'm going to brag first. Stu told you about some good things that happened to him. He's changing careers now. It's exciting. I talked at lunch with Margaret about the tremendous program she's looking forward to working in. My family has been a joy for me. These eight kids of mine, six of them are through college. Two of them are through law school. One is in medical school. One is in his, the two that aren't through college yet, one is going into his senior year. One is in her freshman year. Five have had an opportunity with my booze money, the money that rightly belonged in the cash registers of the saloons, to study abroad, each of them for a year, in Italy. And that's one of the tremendous benefits. One of the tremendous benefits. Of course, this program doesn't promise material rewards, but it does promise us, in the promises, the ability to savor the simple joys of life, like here at Blackstone this weekend. I got up this morning and took a nice run. Didn't cost a penny. Tremendous, exhilarating, fun, exciting. They told me that I was an emotional baby, impetuous, immature. Boy, I hate to admit that. But you've shown me that we're all something else, too. And I think this is important for our self-esteem and for our self-worth. I think you and I are the people that have a zest for living. We want to milk all the nuances, all the goodies out of a 24-hour period. We want to live life to the hilt. We want to live 105%. You know how you can live 105%? Make a 12-step call. Go into somebody's home that's a shambles, and then six weeks later go back there and the kids say, Hi, I'm Mr. R., and you're picking somebody up and taking them off to a meeting. That's 105%. But that first night, Doyle said to me, an alcoholic, somebody that can't drink safely, Ernie, you don't have to say you're nuts, you don't have to say you're crazy. We have some middle grounds between the horns of that dilemma. You can say you have an illness about five or seven or whatever percent of the drinking public, when they take a drink, it's coupled with an obsession of the mind. They lose control. They're off to the races. They just can't drink safely. This allergy theory was maybe unscientific, but it's worked for me. It's easy to understand. But here's what's hard to understand. Tonight, while you and I are having this tremendous sharing in this fellowship, in this great weekend, Tonight, our work's unfinished. There are millions of people out there still fighting this thing. There's an attractive gal, like our speaker from last night, that tonight, someplace in this great country of ours, is going to kill some innocent kid with her car and not even remember what she did in the morning. There's some poor drunk, some guy, that's going to die a drunkard's death today and inflict the final cruel indignity on his family. You know, dying of cancer or something, that's unfortunate. Dying a drunkard's death, the family is there half grief and half relief. There's a little shame involved. 
there's some lawyer someplace that's being disbarred. Somebody's being fired. All of these things are happening to people, millions of them, and you and I are sober and relatively happy. Now, I have to ask myself, with you, out of these millions of people, didn't God make at least some of them more deserving of this program than me? And I have to answer yes. And out of these millions of people, weren't some of them just made of intrinsically better stuff than me? And I have to answer yes. Then how is it that I'm here? I have only one answer, and I learned it from you. This was a gift given to me perhaps just this once. I think the good Lord made millions of people better than he made us. But I'm convinced he must have loved us more. God bless you. Remain standing just a minute, please.